Good afternoon. Delight to see you all here as the weather closes in on us. Um, but I, I think a rich and warm afternoon ahead of us, certainly for the following hour. Uh, I've just been reminded to introduce myself, which I would have forgotten to do entirely. I think my role is really to be as transparent as these chairs, you know, give support but be seen right through, which you, you probably will. Um, that said, uh, I, I'm Michael Kaywood Green. I'm Professor of English and Creative Writing at Northumbria University. Uh, I have the accent I do uh, because I'm actually of South African extraction, in fact, until quite recently, three years ago. Um, so please bear with that accent. But uh, possibly along the lines of coming from something of a colonial stroke, post-colonial background, uh, it's, uh, I've been delighted to be invited to ask to chair this session. And we have two writers who I think, the thing about introductions, usually if you've come to see people, the point is they don't need any introductions. So <laughs> to some degree, introductions uh, cannot be necessary, except we're just readjusting our headsets here. Uh, I should warn anybody from the mafia, we are wired. So, uh, you know, as the films would, would always have us believe. Stories of Empire, Victoria Glendinning and Andrew Cruzzi, a, a delight uh, to have them here. Could we just welcome them once more, I think? both with new, relatively new books to launch. One so new, I'm afraid we'll have to make some comments about its availability. But uh, for the, in that sense, a, a cutting-edge afternoon of, of, of new writing in this area. I, just by way of introduction to my take on things, I suppose, here, we have a work of social history and a work of biography that we'll, the two authors will be speaking to this afternoon. And... Uh, in reading them, I was struck just how, with such facility, the two authors could move across those genres where biography becomes social history, social history becomes biography. And uh, I think that makes a very natural bridge to, to the, the works we'll be thinking about this afternoon and indeed the authors and, and their approaches to their writing. We'll be getting into that a little later. What I'll be doing, first of all, is introducing the two writers, uh, just in a, in a few words. Uh, and then uh, Victoria will lead first with a reading. Uh, Anne will follow with speaking to her new book, and it will be an illustrated presentation, so we'll have that delight as well. Uh, we will then engage in a, a short conversation, perhaps, on the stage, and gauging that as, as finely as we can, we'll then open to the floor and, and ask you all to, to join in. Uh, so that's, that's the housekeeping. I think that, that's our way forward here. Victoria, well, I mean, born in Sheffield, read modern languages at Somerville College, Oxford, worked as a teacher and social worker before starting work as an editorial assistant at the Times Literary Supplement, and has gone on to become a vital part of the fabric of literary life in the UK, primarily as a biographer and indeed a novelist as well. Uh, I'm sure many of you here will be familiar with a number of her biographies, uh, starting out with A Suppressed Cry, Life and Death of a Quaker Daughter, Elizabeth Bowen, Portrait of a Writer, Vita, The Life of Vita Sackville-West, which was uh, the winner of the Whitbread, Whitbread Prize, Edith Sitwell, Unicorn Among Lions, won Duff Cooper and the James Tate Black Prize, Rebecca West, Anthony Trollope, Trollope won another Whitbread Prize, Jonathan Swift, Leonard Wolfe. Her most recent biography, and the book that brings us together here this afternoon, 
is her life of Sir Stamford Raffles, founder, of course, of Singapore, and uh, that is the book we'll be speaking to quite strongly this afternoon and hearing a reading from. Victoria is, of course, honorary vice president of English Pen, a fellow and vice president of the Royal Society of Literature, president of Pen between 2001 and 2003, chair of the Best Booker Prize. Sorry, you've earned this. You, you may as well be subjected to it. We, we, we're luxuriating, so I hope you are too. Um, awarded the CBE in 1998, and it's been indicated strongly I should stop there, and so I shall. <laughs> but we will look forward to hearing from Raffles and the Golden Opportunity shortly. Uh, Anne, Anne, indeed. The rougher in the back? Well, I wouldn't believe that for a second. Well-known writer, journalist, and book reviewer. In the 70s, she was woman's editor on the London Evening News until its demise in 1980. Joined the Evening Standard as a columnist and feature writer. 1982, she joined the Daily Mail as a feature writer with a special interest in historical subjects and left in 2003 to concentrate on books. Talked widely, of course, in the UK, as we're familiar, but also in the United States as well. Anne is on the committee of the Biographers Club and a past judge of their annual prize. And her recent biographies, all of which have been serialized, have been celebrated in many ways. Critically acclaimed and best-selling author, the best possible combination. And it's from one description of her work that I'd like to lead into the presentations we're about to hear, and that is this point that Anne has made before, that a biography should depict the social history of the period with which it's concerned. So much of the action and behavior is governed not simply by obvious personal, financial, social, and phys physical conditions, but also by underlying, often unspoken, contemporary attitudes, assumptions, standards, and moral codes. And the book she will speak to this afternoon, The Fishing Fleet, Husband Hunting the Raj, displays those virtues extremely richly. So it's, it's my delight to welcome Victoria and Anne with us this afternoon and ask Victoria if she would mind kicking off with a reading. I will. Thank you very much. Hello. It's very nice to be here. And if anybody can't tell me, can't hear me, tell me now because afterwards it's too late. I'm going to read you first just from the introduction because it sets the scene about the man and then I'll read you a short bit of something adventurous that happened. Everyone has heard of Raffles Hotel in Singapore. There are also in Singapore schools, colleges, businesses, medical centres, auctioneers, investment management companies, shopping malls, clubs, streets, squares, landmarks and service departments, all bearing the name Raffles or Stamford. Until recently, Singapore Airlines called their business class, Raffles Class. Raffles is a brand that belongs to no one and everyone in Singapore. And the name delivers an instant message. Exclusive, probably expensive, uniquely Singaporean, heritage. Though the branding becomes a bit stretched at the lower end of the commercial spectrum. This is all because in 1819, Sir Stamford Raffles raised the British flag on a small jungle-covered island and founded a settlement which became the city-state of Singapore. He was also Lieutenant Governor of Java and of Bengkulu in West Sumatra. That is not all that he did in the East Indies. 
the Eastern Archipelago, as he called it, and only a part of what he was. The reality of him got submerged by his image and his name. He has been reimagined by history writers, both as a hero and as a villain of the British Empire. The fiction writer E.W. Hornung, at the turn of the 19th century, borrowed the name Raffles for his gentleman thief. And Raffles appears as himself a fictional presence in three of Patrick O'Brien's seafaring sequence of novels. There's even a musical, Raffles of Singapore, last performed in 2010 in Henley-on-Thames, uh, fortuitously where Raffles and his second wife spent their honeymoon in 1817. And Raffles' story in a novel would strain, strain credulity. His good fortune and his ill fortune were of an extreme kind. Many times learning about him, I felt I recognised him. At any period, such people erupt. Born with no advantages, he took his chances and strove to realise his visions. He became the entrepreneur of his own ideals and a utopian imperialist. He wanted fame and he wanted to do good. From the age of 14, he was an employee of the East India Company, a 200-year-old hydra-headed commercial entity administering the British Empire in fractious partnership with Parliament. And the company's arcane practices have a great deal in common with dysfunctional global corporations today. And it was called by Adam Smith an absurdity five years before Raffles was even born. The company contained and constrained Raffles and finally spat him out while reaping the benefits of his greatest, greatest achievement, Singapore. He was not an organisation man. For him, the status quo was never an option. And his way, which is the way of all impatient innovators, was to do something first and seek approval from the proper authority afterwards. And usually what came was a directive not to take the measure in question, by which time it was too late. In the days of sale, it could take up to 10 months each way for dispatches between the Eastern Isles and company headquarters in London. Raffles' career was played out in the East, but the backdrop was European. The Portuguese, then the Dutch, the British and the French were involved in the lucrative spice trade in the Eastern Isles for two centuries, before the wars between Britain and France, each in shifting coalitions with other European states, injected a military dimension into the commercial rivalry. Apart from a shaky one-year peace in 1803, Britain was at war with France on land and at sea from the time Raffles was 12 until he was in his mid-30s. So what was Raffles like? Raffles was high-strung, clever, articulate, impetuous, charming, small in stature and physically fragile. He had unusual resources of energy, curiosity and resilience. He had a loving heart. He was loyal, supporting and promoting his friends to an extent that was injudicious, even in a time of patronage and nepotism. He inspired profound devotion in some colleagues and made enemies of others, especially military men. He loved his mother and sisters and looked after them financially. He loved his wives, both of whom were remarkable women. Coming to fatherhood relatively late, he adored his children. Writing about their deaths has been painful, 
as was writing about the fire on the fame, which I'm just going to tell you about in a minute, in which um, one of his precious collections of natural history drawings, animal specimens, manuscripts, Javanese artifacts, and all his professional and personal papers were lost at the bottom of the Indian Ocean. This is not a rags to riches story. It's more interesting than that. Raffles was never much good at making money, either for himself or for the East India Company. He died at 45 under a dreadful burden of debt in semi-disgrace with the company, while paradoxically being lionized by the scientific community in London. One thing I would like to dispel in this book is the idea that the British or the Europeans in general out east led a, a life of ease and luxury and so on. I mean, some people made fortunes and came, the neighbors and came out very, very rich men. Quite a lot of people made enough money to retire on. At Raffles' time, nobody was thinking in terms of staying out there. It was all about colonization hadn't really got going. It was really about how to make enough money to get home and live in England. But a lot of people never made it at all. And, and of course, there was an awful lot of dying, cholera, malaria, infections of all kinds, filthy water, and then the psychological effects of loneliness in the fetid settlements, depression, frenzy, despair. So for a lot, it was not a good life. Um, Raffles had his triumphs and his failures, as the book tells you. But right at the end, after he had founded Singapore and left Singapore, and four of his little children had died under the age of six, it, and he and his wife, Safawa, were broken people. And then she had another little baby, and that one died too. And they were now coming home for the last time, bringing with them a little four-year-old boy who was um, Raffles' nephew, the, daughter, the son of his favourite sister, Marianne, who was also out east. And so they were happy to be going home. The Fame, that's the name of the ship, The Fame, that nice little ship, as he called it, with all Raffles' collections safely stowed, 135 hefty crates, apart from live creatures, set sail in the early morning of the 2nd of February, 1824, with a favourable wind. They were going home. His cargo took up much of the ship, and there was a load of saltpetre in the hold. This was, Raffles said, one of the happiest days of his life. We were, perhaps... He wrote, too happy. That evening, 50 miles southwest of Benkulan, the fame caught fire. The alarm was given at about 20 past eight, and within less than 10 minutes, the ship was ablaze. This is Raffles talking. Safar had just gone to bed, and I'd thrown off half my clothes when a cry of fire, fire roused us from our calm content, and in five minutes, the whole ship was in flames. A steward had gone down below with a naked light to um, get some brandy from a flask, and the, fla and the cask caught fire. And that's what started the inferno. And Raffles wrote a very vivid account of the catastrophe and later published a version of it as a pamphlet. Sophia wrote her own account to Marianne, that's Raffles' sister, whose little boy they were bringing home. And between the two, one gets a graphic impression of their ordeal. This is Sophia. I had just laid my head down on my pillow and Tom was in his little dressing cabin when the cry of fire made me rush to the door. When I saw a man spring up the hatchway covered with flame, Tom flew to see what was the matter and fire, water, water, resounded through the ship. The next minute Tom returned to say it was all over. 
we would die. The next cry was, Lady Raffles to the boats. I had only time to throw on my pelisse. She had nothing but a wrapper, Raffles added, neither shoes nor stockings. Wrap Charles, that's the little boy, up in a shawl, and get David Scott, that's another little boy who they were kind of in charge of, whose cabin was in flames when he was dragged out of bed, and we got into the boat, the flames bursting through our windows. We descended the ship's side, the whole vessel a sheet of flame, and the rest of the party left on the other side of the ship, and in ten minutes every soul had quitted her. There was not even time to get a drop of water or refreshment of any kind. Fortunately, the captain seized a compass, and this was everything to us. The live animals and birds were not saved, but by half past eight, according to Raffles, everyone was off the ship and into boats, and less than ten minutes afterwards, the fame was one grand mass of fire. She blazed until around midnight when the saltpetre exploded, and this is Raffles again, sent up one of the most splendid and brilliant flames that ever was seen, illuminating the horizon in every direction to an extent of not less than 50 miles, and casting that kind of blue light over us, which is of all things the most horrible. Finally, they lost sight of the ship as she went down in a cloud of smoke. Then their boat was adrift on the dark ocean. Fortunately, the sea was smooth, wrote Safar, and the boys slept soundly. Raffles' account adds the detail that neither Nielsen Hull, that's Safar's brother, nor Dr. Bell had saved their coats, but the tail of his own coat, plus a pocket handkerchief, served to keep Safar's warm. And we made breeches for the children with our neckcloths. The crew rode manfully back in the direction of the Sumatran coast. As Safar said, if they hadn't had the compass, and if the disaster had happened the following night, when they were further out to sea, they could not possibly have survived. Morning came. I felt perfectly convinced, wrote Raffles, we were unable to undergo starvation and exposure to sun and weather for many days. They had no food and no water. And aware of the rapidity of the currents, I feared we might fall to the southward of the port. Then they saw Rat Island and knew they were on course for Benkulu. The last stretch was the worst, especially for, for Safar. The sun was on the meridian and I felt exhausted for we had nothing to shelter us from its rays and the boat was so small we could only take care of the children. A ship standing in Benkulu Roads came out to rescue them and take them back to port. By this time, wrote Raffles, Safar was quite exhausted and fainting continually. They were on dry land by two o'clock in the afternoon. If any proof had been wanting that my administration had been satisfactory, we had it equivalent from all. There was not a dry eye. They were driven straight back to their old house and were all in bed within an hour of landing and slept through until the next morning. They had lost everything except their lives. I'll leave it there, but it goes on. <clears throat> Thank you, Victoria. Thank you indeed. Uh, I, I can just tell you, you need to dive into the book after hearing that. Uh, unfortunately, there's been a bit of a supply issue. Um, so I'm afraid copies of the book aren't immediately available, but uh, the organizers of the festival will take your, 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 your names and, and organize purchases for you should you want to. Just speak to some of the people in the back 
on the way out. But that's one of the books we've now got afloat, which I think is an appropriate term for our, our books this afternoon, uh, and, and, and a, a wonderful one indeed. Thank you, Victoria. And I can sign little slips, which they will provide, say, Durham Book Festival, and I can just sign them. And then you can stick it in the book when you get it. So there's your chance. If you, you turn <laughs> that down, you really don't know the opportunity you're being given. Thank you so much. But uh, we, we're going to try and set up a bit of a dialogue between these two books. I think you'll see there's quite a bit to, to do that. So if I could just, without any further ado, ask Anne to lead in with a presentation about the fishing fleet. Well, the fishing fleet's subtitle is Husband Hunting in the Raj, and that really just about sums it up. Because when I first started researching it, when I first heard the words, the fishing fleet, I thought possibly this was somebody talking to me about um, the Cod Wars with Iceland. But the more I started researching it, I discovered it was actually a 300-year phenomenon. It went on really from the mid-17th century till, in, it, I'm told it still goes on actually in certain places, till World War II, pretty well, Independence for India came in 1947, but for my purposes, everything ended in 1940 because you didn't travel for pleasure after, really, during the war. Well, now, the fishing fleet started in the days of the East India Company, um, which was, as Victoria has said, a trading organisation which went out to the Far East. And it got its charter on the last day of 1600. And going out then was a really dreadful business. It was a voyage of at least five months. You had to go round the Cape of Good Hope. You went in these tiny little cockleshell boats, four or 500 tons. Seasickness, which was something that we don't often encounter today, because if we do go by sea, it's usually in some huge boat with stabilizers, and anyway, most people fly. But then, it was of a virulence and duration that you can only imagine, and it is, for anybody who's ever had it, one of the most ghastly feelings in the world. Well, out you went in these little boats, and you took your larder with you in the shape of a farmyard. It's moos, bars, and clucks gradually decreasing as you ate it. Um, you often ran short of drinking water because there were pirates along the coast. And I can only ask you to imagine the stench and the discomfort in one of these boats, um, the effluvia from the animals, the... Um, aroma from unwashed people and possibly unwashed floors. It must have been absolutely awful. I have a rather graphic description um, in my book of one of these voyages. So the people who went out to the East India Company, if they survived, they probably only came back once during their service. Um, again, if they survived, they would come back at the end. So the next question is, what did they all do for women? these chaps? The short answer is most of them formed liaison with Indian women. Some married them. And some men became so taken with Indian women um, that they really, they were very happy with them. This was all perfectly acceptable. Uh, one man, for instance, a general, was christened Hindu Stuart because he thought there was nothing to touch Hindu women. And he particularly liked watching them um, wash themselves, bathe. They always kept their saris on. And you couldn't tell that what he really wanted, would have liked, was to institute a wet sari contest. <laughs> and he, in fact, he advised the wives of the Britons out there that they would keep the marital flame burning more brightly 
if they too immersed themselves in the water and allowed their clothes to cling to them. And others preferred the light-skinned uh, Muslim women from the north. And in fact, some men were so keen on Muslim women that they actually had themselves circumcised to appeal to them. And you can't really get a greater compliment than that. <laughs> it beats a bunch of flowers any day, I think. <laughs> but some men still preferred British brides. And the company adopted the practice of sending out small batches of young women, all volunteers. Uh, very often they were orphans or penniless, people who didn't have anybody to look after them and um, see that they married uh, the right person or indeed got married at all. And these girls were prepared to take a chance and go out there. And they would go out, about 40 of them at a time, in one of these little boats, and when they arrived, um, there was something called sitting up. They were entertained by one of the most respectable British hostesses of the port at which they landed, Calcutta or Bombay or whatever. And all the anxious bachelors, the eager bachelors from miles around would come and sit opposite and eye the talent and decide which one they wished to, as the saying went, pay their addresses to. Now, the company would feed, maintain, and clothe these girls for a year. And almost all of them had suitors vying for their hand, but those that were too plain or too unpleasant or too badly behaved for even the most desperate company man were sent home and called returned empties. <laughs> well, by about, um, then two things happened. Lord Cornwallis, the man who lost at Yorktown, uh, was made governor general of, um, Bengal, and his brief was to root out corruption in the company. And he did this, first of all, by raising people's salaries so they didn't have to take bribes. He didn't trust Indians, and he said then that nobody with Indian blood would be allowed to have a job in the company worth more than 500 a year. Well, of course, this ruled out the progeny of uh, the East India Company generals and people who'd married Indian women who had sent their children home to be educated. The girls very often stayed in England and married. One of our prime ministers, Lord Liverpool, had an Indian grandmother. Um, the boys would go back and usually get a job in the company. And two of the most famous Indian regiments, Gardner's Horse and Skinner's Horse, were founded by these Anglo-Indian children. Then Lord Wellesley said he was not, who succeeded as Governor General, said he was not going to entertain anybody in Government House who had Indian blood. Well, that absolutely set the machinery for apartheid in motion, with the result that British brides became more popular than ever. By this time, the East India Company had got slightly bigger ships and had realised that India was now viewed as a marriage market. So by 1840, they were charging girls, charging people to go out. And if you were somebody, for instance, shall we say, a poor vicar in Kent who'd had a large family, as poor vicars, certainly in Trollope, often seem to, um, and you've got, say, eight daughters, as one of my examples had, and you know what transport was like in those days, and perhaps there weren't many young men round, and there was also the prevailing opinion that quite early on in your life, say 24 and 25, you began to be classified as an old maid, where do you go for honey? Well, if you have a son in the East India Company, you dispatch some of your daughters to go and stay with him. And out they go, 
and it would be a brave parent these days who would send out a 16-year-old girl in one of these little ships. Four East Indian men were lost in a storm off Mauritius. In one of these ships, which were pretty perilous, and the feeling you might never see her again. But I cannot overstress the importance it was for young women to find a husband in those days. Then came the Raj, um, East India Company. India was taken over by the British government, and this was in 1858. In 1868, the Suez Canal opened, and women could begin to flock out. But even before that, there was a huge demographic shift. Between 1851 and 1861, the number of unmarried women under 35 in Britain doubled. And most of these were in what was called the servant-keeping classes. There were articles in the Times, there were um, societies formed for what was called the problem of superfluous women. Well, it was considered one very good solution was to send them to the colonies. And an awful lot went to Australia, but those usually were girls who were much tougher, who were prepared, if need be, to chop wood or black a grate or milk a cow or do all these things. But your, what was called gently born Victorian girl, however poor she was, she was not educated to do this. She knew how to embroider, she could probably sketch a bit, and she certainly sat up straight. Um, <laughs> but what was she fitted for? And hence, you got this vast, vast number of governesses and lots of Victorian novels, as well as famous ones like Jane Eyre, were written about the poor governess. So you had this terrific push. A lot of their brothers, of course, you see, were empire building. There were actually schools which looked outwards, like the one that Kipling based Storky & Co. on, Westward Ho and Haleybury. So there was a tremendous outward look uh, and it was all really aimed at India. So out they would go, um, and almost always they would find husbands. There was, when the Raj started, uh, there was a slight difference in the age in rules about pertaining to marriage. East India Company, uh, it didn't matter how old you were as long as you had enough money, but with the Raj, the Indian Civil Service, which was the absolute creme de la creme. It was, that was the sort of husband every mother wanted her daughter to marry if, if she went out to India. Because um, if you'd been married a year and he succumbed to dysentery or the plague or one of the awful lethal diseases, uh, you still got your 300 a year. They were known as 300 a year men, dead or alive. Um, and then you have... Uh, the army, well, they too were not allowed to marry till they were 30. You had to be a, a, really a captain. So there was an awful lot of chaps around. There was something like four men to every single woman. And I think it must have been awfully difficult not to get married if you went out there. The fishing fleet by this time, as the years went on, it, it devolved into three distinct strands, particularly in the 20th century. Uh, there were the girls who'd been home to educate, been sent home to ed be educated, because a lot of families had been in India by now for several generations, and they all sent their children home to England to be educated. Then the mother would go home and bring the girl out. Then there were others who perhaps had a sister who was married to somebody in the army who said, 
come and stay, come out in the cold weather. There's wonderful sights out here. You'll have a tremendous amount of fun, and fun is what they did have. And then there were others who, using the same excuse as somebody to stay with, went out with their parents, spoken or unspoken words in their ears, found yourself a husband. You see, after World War I, there was also a tremendous shortage of men. So India, for the adventurous, was a marvellous place to go to. And an awful lot did go out. And as I say, I think you'd, you'd go out in the cold weather and you would have tremendous gaiety. That's when all the entertaining happened. And uh, you might, with luck, you might be taken to have dinner with, in a Maharaja's palace or um, you'd be taken on picnics. You would be probably dance at the club every Saturday night. There was a club practically everywhere. And, of course, there were loads of servants who looked after you very well. Um, and can you imagine, if you're 18, you're surrounded by these very fit, attractive young men. They were all fit because sport was hugely important and hugely encouraged. It was a sublimation both for sex and for war. And for war. So it was encouraged on both counts. Um, and there you were with these attractive young men in the glamorous uniforms. You're 18, you go out there, um, perhaps you're strolling on a beautiful lawn running down to the river with a full moon and the air smelling of jasmine. How do you not fall in love? And so most of the fishing fleet really married quite young. But when they got married and who they married, enormously affected their life afterwards. I mean, they would find themselves in quite different and often very difficult circumstances. But I think this is a good place for me to stop. <laughs> a good place to stop only in the sense that, like Victoria, it leaves us wishing that both of you would go on. Um, but thank you very much for those presentations. Uh, were you going to speak to some of your pictures at, at some point? Would you prefer oh, to that yes. a bit later? or Whenever you like. Um, well, I think I've got a lot of pictures. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll take that as, a, as, as both a pleasure Whenever and a like. warning. Uh, super. Um, I think let's try and set things going to something of debate. I, I do want to open things up to the floor, as I mentioned earlier, but if I could just start off by thinking about the, the, the forms, the genres in which our two writers work. Uh, what really will strike you immediately uh, uh, if you're looking at Raffles and the Golden Opportunity is, is how much the novelist's eye has come to bear in a biography, because Victoria has sculpted the most wonderful narrative arc out of the life of this character. It is clear this is a genre in which she is supremely masterful, and it just shows wonderfully in this book. It reads with the flow and the feel, and if I may say as well, the prose of fiction, but carrying its subject before it all the time. I think one thing that links both books too is, is the use of the source material and how wonderfully it's woven into the prose of the writers. And I'm not sure if either of you would like to say something about that as we go along. But perhaps if we could just come back to Victoria for a second and perhaps could I ask you to, to, to start off with some sense of the way in which you shape a life that is there for you already in, in, in one way? No, I don't want to know anything about that at all. Great. I, <laughs> what I want to say is I'm absolutely gripped by the way 
our two books overlap, because I haven't actually read your book, but I've been listening to you, and how the social history, sort of the generalization by taking examples, is sort of worn out by absolutely everything that happened to Raffles. It's as if um, you were making the sort of big tapestry, which I had got kind of a little weed in the corner about, because Raffles's sister Marianne, age 16, you said they were 16, Somewhere. came, ish, they could even be younger, I think, came out with him and his first wife when he first went out east. He was 23, and Marianne was 16. And of course, he was, their father was in an almshouse. <laughs> they had to get married. He had three other sisters at home. And she found a husband, I mean, on that long voyage out that you described, because a lot of new young clerks were going out to Penang. And so she found him there. And then later, Harriet and Leonora came out too. And Leonora found a widower very quickly, because there were a lot of widowers, because women died in childbirth. But Harriet was, a, I'm sorry to say, one of your returned empties. And <laughs> she had to go back again. But what interested me, and I'm sure you know more about this than I do, was the speed that it happened. I mean, sometimes these, um, the ladies who entertain that you describe, that when the pretty ladies were arriving in the, in the port and all the gentlemen knew they were coming, it must have been very exciting. Um, sometimes the marriages were arranged within almost a week or something. And it seems to me that that's because I think, you tell me, everybody knew what the expectations and needs were. Everybody knew why young ladies had come out. Everyone knew why the young officers and civil servants had come to meet them. And in an almost kind of, um, I don't know whether you would think it was almost rather a crude way that it was all done so elegantly. They all knew exactly what this was about, so why not get on with it, especially as you might all be dead in the morning from dysentery. And so it's the sort of speed with which it all happened, did you think? I think in those early days, it was hugely speed. It was a kind of uh, form of speed dating, yes, in a way. Yes, it was. You're quite um, right. Because they all, they all knew what was they were out there for. They were, um, and the men had to be very quick, because otherwise someone else would nip in and get the prize. Uh, but there were a number of cases uh, when... Um, you know, a girl was widowed very young, perhaps she'd been married to somebody for a year and he died by one of these awful diseases that women were actually proposed to as they emerged from their husband's funerals on the steps of the church. Um, and in one or two cases, you know, arrangements were made over his deathbed with his best friend, which was pretty unnerving. But yes. it was not quite like that in the Raj. You went out and things did take a bit longer. But even so, you had to be fairly quick. Even in the days, even in the 30s, even in our grandparents' days, you had to be fairly quick then because um, you might have a limited opportunity. I have uh, one couple who you may see the photographs of later uh, who she was out staying with, she was with her parents and she saw this handsome stranger leaning against the club bar, but she couldn't speak to him because she, they had not been introduced and there was no one to introduce them. Protocol was enormously strict, enormously strict, and so was chaperoning. And she sort of sighed and then she saw him again somewhere else. Still, there was nobody to introduce them. Then, mercifully, um, she and her mother were asked to a dinner party by a friend 
quite a formal dinner party, but he decided that he would have the, um, they would work out how, which men took which woman into dinner by having a hat with all the men's names in. You put your hand in, each woman put her hand in, pulled one out. Her mother pulled out the glamorous stranger. So she quickly arranged to swap. By this, that meant they could talk, they clicked. And almost at once, it was the end of Delhi week or something, almost at once he had to go off. Um, they kept in touch, he lived 100 miles away. Uh, they got fonder and fonder of each other. But he lived a very isolated life. But he was a man of honor. He thought this 19-year-old girl, she must know, you know, I love her, but she ought to see what she's in for. So he asked her and her mother, and her mother, of course, to stay in the Animales Hills on his plantation at the most unattractive time of the year when the rain was bucketing down. And she did say in her journal that um, she did have a bit of a wobble after this, but she thought, I love him so much, I can make a go of it. So she marries this man who is 14 years, 15 years older than her. Was, quite often there was a big age difference. The, and she is lonely and she is isolated and she does make a go of it. That was what was so amazing. I looked at about, I, had, I have a collection of 30, uh, uh, 30 collections of hitherto unpublished letters, journals, and diaries, which have never seen the light of day before. And the same spirit of making a go of it and getting on with it breathes from all of them. It's extraordinary. You can understand the British Empire after reading it. I'm very interested in what you say about um, he lived 100 miles away and this sort of distance thing mm. that they all had to do. Because what really knocked me out when I was learning about the Raffles experience was it was a period of such longness and such slowness. And we were saying about how the um, ships took, it could, it, could, it could take up to 10 months for you to get from one side of the world to the other if you didn't drown. But sometimes it could be minimum five, I would think. And the communications, say, between headquarters of India House and where Raffles was um, in post in Penang or Malacca or Java took so long to come, partly because of the East India Company was such a dysfunctional thing. There were 13 departments and every letter had to be copied and sent to the other department. And then it was drafted and redrafted and sent to the board of control. And all the time people copying and recopying. And so by the end, the, re the reply to the request from India saying, shall I invade the Malacca Islands, as it were, came so long, long, long afterwards and probably said no, by which time whatever it was had been thoroughly done. But it, it, it was the time of long everything, long sermons, long speeches in Parliament, um, long dispatches, long... I mean, the, 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 the attention span... I mean, Raffles letters to the, left to the Governor-General of India, who was Lord Minto in his time, about the invasion of Java when he became Lieutenant of Java. They're like novellas, you know, they're, they're that long. And whether they were ever read from, you know, when did people have time to do all this reading? But it's, the only thing that came quickly was death. You know, you'll be having dinner with your fellow mm -hmm. officer um, one late afternoon, and he'd get a fever that night, and you'd be burying him because you had to bury early in the tropics the following afternoon, and no doubt borrowing yes. his wife, as you said. So it, it, it was, it, it is, 
You know, sometimes you think the past is just like us, only they're wearing different clothes. <laughs> but it is so not like us in many ways, and the furniture of their minds was different simply because of the conditions of their life. And I began to think that the sort of history of um, almost everything is the history of communications. Because as soon as steam came in and the railway came in just after Raffles died, everything shifted again and the time of slow was over. So you have to have, I mean, to, to the question you asked right at the beginning, you have to have a lot of sort of, I hate the word empathy because it sounds so sort of silly, but you have to actually let yourself think yourself into, into the mindset of somebody who is not like us. Do you think? No. I do, I, I, and I'd just like to say, I, I, I'm really taken with the fact that you spoke to that particular passage about the length of things, everything yes. except death, because if I had to choose one passage that represents your book, that was the passage oh, really? that really grasped really me. Got me. And I, I got it marked here, and, and I would have had the asperity to try and read it myself, but you've spoken to it so beautifully. Uh, on Anne's side, just listen to one sentence and think about the personal, the social, the political, all caught in one quotation from the enormous resources that Anne consulted for her book. One of the young ladies from the fishing fleet. I had about a dozen evening dresses. Backless was very fashionable then. You couldn't wear a bra, but one was very firm in those days. <laughs> in a strange way, that's the book. <laughs> Just so, 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 so beautifully balanced and proportioned and matching. The match. thing is so interesting because Raffles took his second wife so far, she wouldn't be parted from him. She was generally pregnant, but she insisted on going deep into the mountains and the jungles of Sumatra where they found the biggest flower in all the world. And uh, she had to be carried over torrents and lugged up mountain paths. And I think he probably would have rather she stayed at home, but she didn't. But I think she was very lucky in that period because there was a period of corsets just before her time and a heavy period of corsets coming just afterwards. But during that time, which was the Regency in England, um, Safar trekking off into the Sumatran jungle in a humidity of I know not what, 100 degrees, would have been wearing... Uh, a little muslin dress with short sleeves, uh, high waist, rather like what I'm wearing now. Um, and in, I'm not wearing white muslin. And I hope she was wearing um, sort of frilly, frilly, what do they call them? Pantaloons. Pantaloons, too, because there were so many um, horrible creatures in the undergrowth. But I think she was very, very fortunate in her clothes. And I've often looked at pictures of people, you know, rather later in, in your period, and the men wearing these sort of ghastly, thick worsted suits. Well, one of the more extraordinary habits of the Raj was flannel next to the skin. Uh, you were supposed to catch cholera for, from a chill, and particularly a chill on the stomach, so that everybody was advised to wear flannel underwear, particularly when playing tennis or doing anything vigorous. <laughs> so, and there were even things called cholera belts, and these were either knitted wool or flannel, and you wore them around your middle, and they were actually issued to the troops. Uh, everything in the Raj went on for about 10 years longer than in England, so that when the um, cholera bacillus was discovered in England, the sort of news of it, or the uh, way you treated it, was 10 years later. So you didn't discard, people in India didn't discard corsets or stays till the early 20s, although special lightweight stays were recommended for those going out to India. And one of my photographs 
shows a man, um, I think, in the 1780s, who writes to his every day to his fiancée, whom he adored, and he was pretty um, uh, firm with her. And he said in tones of horror that he had called unexpectedly at the bungalow with a note for, for um, I think, a senior officer. And, of course, the senior officer wasn't there, but he was unexpected, and Mrs., whoever she was, had received him. And he said, and she was wearing a tea gown. I do hope, Flossie, you will never leave your corsets off, <laughs> even when you don't. I, I wonder if we could, just because it's, it's, it's just too tempting to miss. We, we, just to, could we ask you for maybe just three minutes of photographs oh, yes, as a transition to the audience participation? I think yes. we've got just time for that. Sorry it's so, so short, but just to give Come us in. a taste. The book, I may add, is lavishly served with photographs, so I should you buy the text, you will have access to these. Oh, there we are. You can see she's dressed for tiger shooting in a long, full skirt, a tight waist, a little hat with a feather, white gloves, and um, a flannel next to the skin, of course. That's an 1884 photograph that I was sent. Now, let's see another one. Um, that is the finals of a polo tournament in 1882. Those were the sort of men you met. You can see that they're mostly army because they've got moustaches. Um, let me take on to another one. Now, they always tried to be as English as possible in the Raj. That is a meat of the Bangalore hounds. Um, they're English fox hounds. They're wearing English pink coats. Everything is as English as they could make it. The only real difference um, is that hounds were taken in a camel cart <laughs> to the meat. Um, I'm, move, I'm being very quick about these. That's the end of the Calcutta paper chase. Practically everything was um, horse-based in India. There was polo, there was riding, there was all sorts of horse-based sports. I'm going to be as quick as I can with this. Um, that is a, what's called a chummery. That, that, again, was in the 1880s. Young men would pool their resources together because they could live better um, you know, and have more fun. And you also met more people. Uh, that's a rather lovely car. They've decorated, you can see, veiling and everything all over their topis. You wore your solar topi. The sun was the great enemy, and you wore your solar topi everywhere, practically, except the bath. Um, that's one of the sort of bungalows they would live in, which was rather cool and wonderful. Very little privacy. Now, he is an Indian Army officer. Um, he met... Her, Iris Butler, she's the younger sister of the former Foreign Secretary, Rab Butler. And when she went out to join her parents in, her father had been made governor of the central provinces, um, she was pretty sulky about it because she thought it was, there was no social life hardly. She said to her mother, what about polo? What about parties? What about young men? And her mother said, well, darling, there'll be uh, tigers and jungles, and you can be a great help to your father. <laughs> but the, the chap we saw, just saw, he was the ADC, and he'd come there to shoot a tiger. And a little later on, I'll tell you a story about tiger shooting. I must before it ends, because it's quite a funny one. But for the moment, it's um, when they got married, he was 14 years older than her, her father was supposed to produce the bouquet. And she described it as 
a bunch of vegetation stuck into a ham frill. And she said, I can't, can't take this to the church. And he said, oh, you must. The agricultural department made it. Well, <laughs> that didn't affect her at all. But she remembered she'd been given an ostrich feather fan as a wedding present. So she rushed in and grabbed it. And as her father had a horror of being late to the church. Now, this couple, even in the 30s, is an amazing story. She was brought out by her mother, aged 19, um, who brought her out to stay with friends. The first evening, she met him, this attractive young man. They clicked at once, and they spent the rest of the fortnight together riding, uh, sailing, picnics, all, all that kind of thing. And at the end of the fortnight, her mother said, uh, now we're going off to the hills. And she was very sad, but as she said, you didn't argue with your mother in those days. Then they went home. Then the war started. She became a WAF. They corresponded mildly, but just as friends. And six years after she'd last seen him, and remember, she'd only known him for a fortnight, six years after she'd last seen him, she was home on leave, and the telephone went, and it was him, Nigel, saying, will you marry me? And she said yes. And I actually interviewed her the other day, um, about a year ago, and I said they'd arranged to meet in an hotel in London. And I said, weren't you terrified that he would be different or that you would feel differently or, you know, that after six years and you only knew each other a fortnight? And she said, well, I was quite nervous on top, but underneath I was absolutely certain. And they married, and they did have a wonderful life together. He became a general. I am going to uh, Sorry. Su suggest we stop at that <laughs> wonderful story uh, with a sense in which we just have five minutes left. I would love to ask, are there any questions from the floor for our two writers this afternoon? Sorry, if you could just wait for the microphone. Anybody else who is speaking as well? There is one roving. Here we are. Um, your research on raffles, uh, did you Sorry? spend any time in Singapore at the archive and museum? I did. I'll tell you exactly. Can you hear me still? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, what I have to tell you is that publishers' advances are not what they were, like um, the cut supply there as well. And so I would not, I didn't want to write the raffles book without going where he had been at all but I got a grant from the Lever Hume Trust, which is the most wonderful organization as far as I'm concerned. So I had two months where I was in Singapore and I worked in the Singapore National Library and in the Singapore Archive. I also went to Penang which in, on the Malaysian Peninsula, which is his first appointment, to Malacca where he spent a lot of time and where the invasion of Java sailed from went to Java, Batavia, which is now Jakarta, to central Java, where some of you have, made, have been to see the incredible Buddhist monument, Borobudur, which um, is literally a mountain wrapped in stone carvings, an 800, 800 AD Buddhist building. And if, if you listen to um, Neil McGregor's 100 Objects, the Buddha head that he talked about there was Raffles's. He had brought that back from Borobudur. And so I was rather pleased on his behalf. And uh, where else did I go? And the various courts of central Java, some of which he sacked. And it's terribly important when you're writing about a person and his life to go to the place. I could not have written it 
well, not like I did, and probably it would have been a very hollow book if I hadn't been there. You have to, I needed to be bitten by the mosquitoes that bit him, you know, and to feel that extraordinary hot air and the jungle pressing in. But Singapore, to me, though it's the most successful city-state in the world, was a bit sad because you used to be able to see from Government Hill, now Canning Park, where he built his little bungalow, his government bungalow, right down, down what was the high street, down to the harbour, where the great ships were coming in and his free port was being a success and the Chinese junks. Now, from that hill, you cannot even see the water where the great clusters of outrageous, massive, money-making high-rises. You know, it is a city that's now throbbing with money, which was precisely what Raffles meant. But it's like, you know, beware, you get what you ask for. Fortunately, it's still there to be experienced through Victoria's wonderful book, and I am afraid we've rushed right to, to the end. Uh, as a matter of housekeeping, I'm going to have to ask you, would you mind remaining seated while the authors make their way out? And then they will be just beyond the door, I believe, for signing, uh, purchasing the book signing, and we've explained in Victoria's case what the position would be. I'd like to thank you for your attention. I'd like to especially thank both our writers. Uh, uh, in, in, in the fishing fleet, there's a story of a wife who comes out and marries one of these very sporting husbands, and she complains at one point that he goes to see his hounds before he sees her in the morning. And he says to her, perfectly straightforwardly, I, I love you both, my dear, each in my own way. And that's my feeling about these books. I love them both, <laughs> each in their own way. So thank you very much to Victoria and Anne. Thank you. <laughs>